0: Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we welcome persons of all religions, ethnic and racial origins, sexual orientations, abilities, and other circumstances. We extend a special welcome to our visitors this morning. We're glad you're here. This morning, we welcome to our pulpit the Reverend Nathan Ryan. Nathan is a native of Louisiana, grew up in New Orleans, and attended um, LSU in Baton Rouge, where he attended the Baton Rouge Unitarian Church. And now he is a newly ordained minister of that church. Congratulations, Nathan. Uh, Reverend Ryan was also is also familiar with Austin, he was attended this church for a couple of years um, and is a credentialed religious educator. So we're so happy to have him here with us this morning.
1: And I'll invite us, as we read the mission statement of this church, printed either in your order of service or on the wall of your sanctuary. We gather in community to nourish souls Transform lives and do justice. There is inside every person an inward sea. And in that sea there is an island. And on that island there is an altar. And standing guard before that altar is the angel with the flaming sword. Nothing can get past that angel to be placed upon that altar unless it has the mark of your inner authority. This is your crucial link. With the eternal. So this first reading is a staple of the Unitarian Universalist seminary experience. Uh, There are about five pieces that are required of just about everyone who has ever been through seminary. And this is not all of one of them, and you're welcome for that. Uh, But this is a a portion. And it has fundamentally changed the way we as Unitarian Universalists understand human divinity uh, and God. So this is delivered by Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, in, at the Divinity School Address. It's a Harvard Divinity School, used to be Unitarian. And he delivered this to a group of graduating seniors. In how many churches, by how many prophets tell me, is one made sensible that he is an infinite soul, that the earth and heavens are passing into the, into the mind, that she is drinking forever the soul of God, where now sounds the persuasion that by its very melody emparadises my heart and so affirms its own origin in heaven? Where shall I hear words such as in elder ages that drew others to leave all and follow? Father and mother, house and land, wife and child. Where shall I hear these august laws of moral being so pronounced as to fill my ear? and I feel ennobled by the offer of the uttermost action and passion. The test of true faith certainly should be its power to charm and command the soul as the laws of nature control the activity of the hand, so commanding that we find pleasure and honor in obeying. The faith should blend with the light of the rising and of setting suns, with the flying clouds, the singing bird, and the breath of flowers. But now the priest's Sabbath has lost the splendor of nature. It is unlovely. We are glad when it is done. Can you imagine you studied to be a minister and this is what you're hearing? We can make, we do make, even sitting in our, in our pews, a far better, holier, sweeter for ourselves. Whenever the pulpit is usurped by a formalist, then is the worshiper defrauded and disconsolate. We shrink as soon as the prayer begin, which do not uplift but smite and offend us. We are fain to wrap our cloaks about us and secure as best we can a solitude that hears not. I once heard a preacher who sorely tempted me to say I would go to church no more. A snowstorm was falling around us. Uh, As a Southerner, I can also let you know snow is this white stuff that falls from the sky. Um, So you'll have to pretend. The snowstorm was real, the preacher merely spectral. And the eye felt the sad contrast in looking at him and then out the window behind him into the beautiful meteor of snow. He had lived in vain. He had not one word intimating that he had laughed or wept, was married or in love, had been commended or cheated or chagrined. If he had ever lived and acted, we were none the wiser for it. The capital secret of his profession, namely to convert life into truth, he had not learned. Not one fact in all his experience had he yet imported into his doctrine. This man had plowed and planted and talked and bought and sold and read books and eaten and had headaches and his heart throbs. He smiled and suffers. Yet there was not a surmise, not a hint in all the discourse that he had ever lived at all. Not a line did he draw out of real history. The true preacher can be known by this, that he deals out to the people his life. Life passed through the fire of thought.
0: The second reading is from a more modern Unitarian Universalist minister, Forrest Church, from God Talk. To the consternation of several of my auditors... Unitarians of a decidedly humanist temperament. I could not give lectures on my new book called God Talk without an occasional allusion to my faith in God. Mind you, I tried very hard not to offend their anti-theological sensibilities. I told them that God is not God's name, merely our name for that which is greater than all and yet present in each. If you aren't comfortable with God talk, I said, just think of this power in terms of the life force, the holy, the ground of our being, being itself. As carefully as I could, I explained that I too don't believe in the God that they may long ago have rejected and whom many of their more orthodox or fundamentalist neighbors credulously embrace. I don't believe in the great man in the sky. I don't believe in a God that orchestrates history or medals in our daily lives. This God, the God I too disbelieve in, is far too small to capture my devotion, even to entertain my mind, and certainly too small to quench my doubts. In any event, I said these things to my Unitarian friends. Fortunately, humility is the cornerstone of my theology because several of them refused to swallow a word of this. What seemed self-evident to me and actually quite harmless as far as religion goes caused great offense, especially to one of my favorite fellow passengers, a Unitarian lay leader from a tiny fellowship in Northern California. As we were disembarking, he sent this parting shot across my theological bow. Forrest, he said to me, after a week of listening to you, I've decided that you are doing far more damage to the cause of liberal religion than Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and all the rest of them combined. When these people talk about God, no one with an ounce of critical intelligence pays them any mind. But you, you... Infect the thoughts of your readers. You spread your disease to innocent victims, unwary of how contagious you are. If you continue in this way, you could set liberal religion back at least 100 years. I have never been so flattered in my life. (laughs) To think that I, who will never be guilty of committing a bestseller, could strike anyone as being sufficiently powerful to set back liberal religion even a decade. The rush of importance lasted all the way down the disembarkation ramp where my mother was waiting with instructions. (laughs) Nonetheless, it did get me thinking, why does God talk have so profound an effect on millions of people, including those who are deathly allergic to it?
1: I remember feeling angry, and I didn't know why. It was the first year I was in high school. It was Red Ribbon Week. Now I don't know what you all do in Texas, but in Louisiana, once a year, for about a week, uh, the school decks out in red ribbons in in an attempt to dissuade students from using drugs. Each student was responsible, each student group was responsible for putting up a sign about the week. Uh, Most groups kind of ignored it, they didn't care, or they were just high school students who didn't pay any attention. Uh, but there were a few who did put up signs. And there was one in particular that struck my eye. It had signs that said something like, Jesus loves you, uh, and your body is a temple. Don't poison it with drugs. Now, I remember feeling angry, almost violated, when I saw these signs. I turned to my friend in exasperation about it, and I lashed out and I said something like, they can't do this. What if I put up a sign that said, there is no God, don't do drugs. My friend did not understand my anger and continued doing what he was doing. Now, if I wanted the easy explanation of my emotions, the intellectual part of me could say that I was offended because these groups violated the separation of church and state. Or maybe I was upset because these views excluded atheists and Jews and Muslims and agnostics and anyone else who didn't believe in their specific brand of Christianity. The thoughts and justifications are not wrong. But it didn't explain why I had such an emotional reaction to it. It didn't explain a reaction out of anger and sadness. And it doesn't explain why I still hold that story in my consciousness to this day. I think deep down I was upset because I didn't have the cultural or spiritual understanding that I needed to fully comprehend God as a concept or as an experience. I didn't grow up with an understanding of God, not one that was real and meaningful for me. Yeah, I grew up in a, a small Unitarian Universalist congregation in uh, Louisiana. This was at the strongest point in the humanist wave of our faith. Um, it was a time where you wouldn't hear the word prayer or God or uh, Scripture or any of those words in the service. So it could be some of the culture I grew up in. It could be they talked about it every week, and I was just not in a place that I noticed it. Now, I, do, I did know at the time about God described in the popular culture, a God that had no resonance for me. I knew of their God, you know, an old white man in the sky with a beard who orchestrates and judges. Because I didn't believe in him, and there was an emphasis on him, I figured that I must not believe in God at all. As I got older, my relationship with and understanding of God has grown and adapted and shifted. The experiences of God came first, and it was only later did I come to identify those experiences as God. So let me say that another way. I had experiences and feelings, but I did not have the words to describe them. It was only later as an adult when I started learning about a more expansive description of God that I started identifying these feelings as, feelings, and experiences as divine in nature. Some of those experiences. Um, my time as a Unitarian Universalist youth it was a time when I felt fully embraced by a community of caring, loving peers who encouraged me to discover and embrace my true self. And some of that discovery happened in this building, in this sanctuary, by your congregation. There were, time, there were those family and friends who grew up in awful circumstances friends who were surrounded by neglect and mental illness and addiction, and yet were able to explore and to know themselves and to thrive. There was the incredible dedication of a chaplain and a nurse when I worked in the hospital, who gave up hours to sit with a patient. His family had already left him uh, in the last hours of his life, and they told me the reason they sat there was that no one deserves to die alone. There are those tectonic shifts towards more a more just world, like the ones we are experiencing right now with the rights of our LGBT brothers and sisters. There are those people who work for a greater dialogue, who work for justice, and who, who love those who seem unworthy of love. All of these experiences I would have described as divine or wonderful or holy, but it took a shift in my understanding to ever see them as the work of God. So I want to explore this topic with you for two reasons. First, God and our interpretations permeate our culture so much that we as a religious institution are called to explore it. And second, I think a lot of religious insight can be opened up by this type of exploration. Now, the aha moment for me about God came when I switched the agency. That is to say, when I stopped looking at God as the initiator of events, the person person, who pulls the switch to make it rain or make us love or allows us to live and allows us to die. I flipped it, and I saw God as the descriptor of these things. The words of poet Annie Dillard describe uh, this very well. Uh, I don't like her dismissive attitude or her one-gendered description, but the imagery is so useful I wanted to share that with you. God does not demand that we give up our personal dignity, that we throw in our lot with random people that we lose ourselves and turn from all that is not him. God needs nothing, asks nothing, and demands nothing, like the stars. It's a life with God which demands these things. Experience has taught the race that if knowledge of God is the end, then these habits of life are not the means, but the conditions in which the means operate. You do not have to do these things, not at all. God does not, I regret to report, give a hoot. You do not have to do these things unless you want to know God. They work on you, not on him. And this is the part that really clicked it for me. You do not have to sit outside in the dark. If, however, you want to look at the stars, you will find that darkness is necessary, but the stars neither require nor demand it. This helped me greatly. Instead of seeing God as the cause of love, When I see love, I call it God. Just as when the water falls from the sky, I call it rain, instead of saying that rain caused the water to fall from the sky. Now, because God is such a powerfully deep and complicated metaphor, I think it's okay to see God in many different ways or not at all, and that strengthens the concept. Here are a few, and I'll ask you to try some of these on. Early 20th century Unitarian theologian James Luther Adams describes God as that which ultimately concerns humanity. He also says God is that in which we should place our confidence. Forest Church, the Unitarian Universalist minister from our earlier reading, says that God is that which is greater than all and yet present in each. I see God as the culmination of all of our understanding. Take the lesson from earlier. How many of you found people's words inadequate to describe that art? Some of you? All right. Our best means of communication, pale in experience, pale in comparison to the fullness of experiencing art. And just as an art is just an abstraction of something larger. Art is an attempt to communicate a feeling, an experience, a way of being that is indescribable. How often have you taken a picture of this gorgeous sunset or beautiful view of something, and then you got it and you looked and you thought, what on earth? This is nothing. So here's the trajectory. Words can be inadequate to describe art. Art is inadequate to describe life. Life is inadequate to describe our own musings and worries and ways of making meaning. So if you carry this continuum all the way to infinity, that is how I would describe God. Another way I see God came from our earlier reading by Emerson. What was so revolutionary about his sermon was that it took God out of the scriptures, out of the past, out of books. It was located squarely in you, in each person and their own experience and their own revelation. He put the obligation of knowing the divine and understanding revelation into our very existence. I see God as the culmination of all of our understandings of the world our understandings of good and evil and fun and justice and suffering but it's larger than that god is all of the understandings of everyone that and everything that has ever existed including those who can't make meaning so one conception of god maybe this art thing i talked about let's say the horizontal axis one conception of god could be every person's understanding of what it is to be alive if you keep layering those on and you have three or four or five dimensions, I'm not a math guy, so I don't know if that's possible. But if you add all of these dimensions, that would be a good way to describe God. And I know it's easy to poke holes in someone else's conception of God and their beliefs. But beliefs are just an attempt for us to make sense of our experience. So to argue with someone's belief is like saying to someone that your experience is wrong. We're all to making two-dimensional representations of something three-dimensional. And whenever you try to take something three-dimensional like a globe and put it on a two-dimensional map, you're going to get Greenland or you're going to get South America wrong. And that's just the way it is. If we were to view God as the culmination of all of our experiences and beliefs and knowing, what is implied by that? First, it implies that God is not out there. God is not some foreign substance or entity. It implies that we are all a part of the great makeup of existence. It implies that revelation and the ability to change the world is no farther than right inside each of us. It implies, to borrow the concept from Howard Thurman, that each of us has an altar deep within our souls, guarded by an angel with a flaming sword, and that is our link to the eternal. Second, it implies that what we say and do matters. This is where I depart from Forest Church in our first reading. I don't know how many of you know Forest Church's story. Um, The good of it is he took a small Unitarian Universalist church in New York and grew it into one of the largest in our country. He wrote books on religion and on love and on death. In fact, his writings are what helped me understand death as a minister. In his reading, he dismisses his critics by saying, to think that I, who will never be guilty of committing a bestseller, could strike anyone as being sufficiently powerful to set back liberal religion even a decade. Well, this shadow there's a shadow side of Reverend Church's ministry because he was a human being. He suffered from alcoholism, um, and he had an affair in the church that split the church. It's published in the New York Times and The New Yorker. His words and action had power, and they hurt a lot of people. So if we are part of this larger conception of God, then our thoughts are significant. Our experiences, our insights are holy plasma. I make paper cranes. This is a practice for me lies somewhere in between a deep spiritual practice and a way to manage my fidgety hands. I take a sheet of paper, something that's remotely two-dimensional, and I fold it over and over until it turns into a crane, into something that's three-dimensional. This is a great practice for me, but one with an unforeseen side effect. It takes about three minutes to make a crane, and I have hundreds of these all over my house. I'm so used to them that I forget that other people can treasure them. The spiritual challenge of a God that is a culmination of us, of everyone's meaning and present in each, is similar to the challenge of folding cranes. See, your life is worthy of study. It's a life worthy of hanging in a museum. Your years of experience and insights and attempt to make meaning is each a fold in that paper. All of your work, trying to walk and talk and love and experience life, it gives us depth and dimension and complexity. If you're anything like me, eventually you may reach a point where your gifts, your insights, your way of being in the world are so plentiful they might stop feeling like gifts that others appreciate and then they just seem like hundreds of cranes cluttering up your house. If I had a better understanding of God when I was in high school, I may have not been so angry when I saw those signs at Red Ribbon Week. Still not sure I'd be happy they were up, but I think I could have processed them with a better understanding. That sign that said, your body is a temple, don't poison it? I wonder how that idea would have changed my life if I was able to hear it. I mean, essentially, that's what I just spent the last 20 minutes talking to you about, right? This idea that we are all pieces of God, that we are made up of stardust that has existed since the beginning of time, that is an idea that could have saved me if I knew it in high school. If I was more at peace with God, I might have opened, it might have opened me up to more people I knew in high school. And they might have found a life-changing and healing message of our faith. You know, I know of at least three, maybe four people that I graduated with in a class of 400 that later became Unitarian Universalists. And I was at the time, and I could have helped them, but I wasn't able because I didn't speak their language. I wonder how many people walk past those signs and wish that they could hear that their doubts and their questions made their faith stronger, not weaker. I wonder how many of them would have been eased to know that they are worthy of love and kindness and that they were a blessing to the world. In the most concrete of senses, I wonder how many of my peers in high school could have had their lives transformed if I were able to share this church. With and there's one more conception of God, which is straight out of uh, the Christian scriptures, which may be my favorite. It comes from First John, and it says, "Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves God has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves, sorry, has been born of God and knows God. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and love is made." Let us go out into the world and live a more loving, caring life. Amen.
0: This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.